Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, this evening, please, to 1 John 3. Um, in a manner of speaking, finishing 1 John 3 this evening. We will have one more message uh, next time we are together in the evening uh, focused on a concept that we're going to consider tonight um, before we move into 1 John 4, um, but we are finishing with the text proper this evening. Looking at verses 19 through 24, overcoming emotions with confidence. Love God and love the brethren. These are the marks of one who is abiding in the Spirit. These are the manifestations of those who follow Christ. In relation to teachers, if a teacher does not bear these marks, they have no business representing Christ to others. In relation to believers, if we do not bear these marks, we cannot say that we are abiding in Him. The focus of the text is not inherently on whether or not a person is a believer, whether or not a person is, is saved. And most assuredly, John is not doubting the faith and standing of any of his readers as it relates to the gospel. We've seen that very clearly. But rather, when we are not actively abiding in Christ, and this is the goal, because apart from actively abiding in Christ, we are walking in darkness— Outside of actively abiding in Christ, we cannot relate ourselves properly to reality as it exists, as God has designed it. And we will invariably fall short of the fullness of joy that Jesus Christ intends and indeed has purchased for his children. So today we need to talk about an intangible in all of this. Something which is uh, a bit of a wild card. Something which is uh, a little bit more difficult to peg as it relates to this system that we are erecting a fullness of joy through obedience, through loving the brethren, and such. And that's the ever-elusive concepts of the feelings that are in the heart of a man. Feelings are difficult things. They are rooted in experience. They're rooted in expectations. They are difficult to know. They're complicated to rein in because they are such an intrinsic part of who we are. Feelings, emotions, these things are not bad things. They are given to us by God and they're given to us by very, uh, for, for very important reasons. And, and they are a wonderful part of the nature of what it is to live this life uh, that we have this capacity to feel and that we are able to, uh, in many ways, even guide ourselves into safety and right, right things through the emotional leadings that we have. However, emotions are also um, fickle. And we live in a time where society and culture encourages people to stake their entire understanding of their reality upon their feelings. So that any manipulation of these feelings can completely disorient someone who was perhaps otherwise stable or otherwise in a good direction. Where our emotions and our feelings can do us credit in certain circumstances, that's a double-edged sword because they can also be very dangerous. So today we consider the relationship between our emotions, our feelings, and the reality for those who are in Christ. And in doing so, by God's grace, understand how to overcome the inevitable roller coaster of emotions that our human existence entails. And in that emotions are an intrinsic part of who we are, and again, not a bad part of who we are. We aren't going to successfully get rid of them, and we don't want to successfully get rid of them. We want to feel but we need to learn to identify 
key factors in emotional responses and so find stability in our emotional state so that we can then be in this place where we can relate ourselves properly to not just God, but to this concept of joy. So we dig into this passage. Now recall what I said in the last time we were together, 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. The Bible says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So we know God loves us because he proved it with Jesus on the cross. We know we love others when we prove that with our actions. We know that God loves us, right? That was how 1 John 3 began, because he acted by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. He acted in proactively purchasing our forgiveness so that we know 100% that God loves us because he has already borne in his actions the manifestations of his love for us. In the same way, we know that we love others when we manifest in our actions love toward them, that we do not love in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So that John has called us unto an unfeigned love of the brethren, which is not a love of word, but is a love of deed. And this is important to what we're going to talk about today. So it needed to be revisited at least as a kind of a launching point for our context this evening. So that is our context. That's what we talked about last time. Now let's continue in the text in verse 19. John says, and hereby we know that we are in that uh, we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So the first bit here is what we have been saying now throughout. It is the same thing that we considered in Hebrews 11 concerning faith. It's the same thing that we considered last month when we memorized James 2.18, which I also talked about this morning. And not only did we talk about James 2.18 this morning, but we talked about faith this morning as well. Faith is when what we know becomes what we believe and so affects what we do. That's what we said all throughout Hebrews, right? Faith is when what we know becomes what we believe and so affects what we do. And so that we know we have faith when the work that is the natural consequence of that faith is brought about in our lives, is produced in our lives. When I see the product of my belief, I am exercising, I know, I have confidence that I'm exercising faith. So it is. In this, that we know that we are of the truth. In this, we know that we are walking in the Spirit, that we are abiding in Christ. When the product of our lives is reflective of keeping God's commandments and loving the brethren, I can have a confidence that I am in that place of truth, that I am walking in a manner that is right before Him. But this also produces something else in our lives. Something very important for us. John says, hereby we know that we are of the truth, but also we shall assure our hearts before him. And here we are talking again about this idea of confidence. One of the biggest problems in modern Christianity is the attempt among the church to replace spiritual confidence with emotional affirmation. 
where churches put all of their time and their resources into conjuring up positive feelings in the hearts of their people at the expense of spiritual confidence. Positive emotions are then used as a pseudo-spiritual replacement for actual peace and contentment in the heart of the believer. And the way that you can oftentimes identify this is that you are uh, observing Christians who appear to be on a roller coaster. That when they're in a setting where their church is feeding this pseudo-spiritual emotionalism, they're on the high and they feel great. And they're feeling good about things. And then as soon as that wears off, they crash. And they're on this roller coaster. And the only way they can stay at the top of that is by constantly feeding this stuff into them so that they can stay on that constant, in that constant state of emotional validation. And while, again, our emotions are not a bad thing, what this is doing is this is synthesizing spiritual contentment. But it's, of course, synthesizing it in a significantly less um, effective way. And the problem with this positive emotionalism is it lasts only as long as the extent to which I can keep my emotions in check. And this demands tremendous maintenance. It's very volatile and generally results in churches and Christians which are, for lack of better term, emotionally fragile and thus theologically fragile, spiritually fragile. And this is so very different from how the Bible describes the Christian life. Ephesians 6 describes the armor of God, right? In each piece contemplates an attribute of the Christian life as we walk with Christ. But notice the end unto which. It's actually before the, the, the armor of God that it's presented, but it's presenting the end unto which the armor of God is intended to carry us. Ephesians 6 verse 13 says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. Why? Unto what end? That ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Paul tells us here that the various attributes of the Christian walk direct us unto an end that in the day of evil, this is the bad day, not the good day. This is the worst day, not the best day. This is the day when you're at your weakest, not the day that you're at your strongest. That in the day of evil, you might not only be able to withstand, but you can, having done all, Stand, not crumble, not falter, not fail, but stand. This is consistency. This is strength. This is stability. James describes the attributes of the Christian life as an anchor in the storms of life. He warns against a double-mindedness that leads to an inconsistency of life and emotion described in James 1 verse 8 as unstable in all his ways. Jesus also, when he walked on earth, described the stability of the Christian life. So he taught in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. 
Jesus describes the disposition of one of his followers as one who has founded the structure of his life upon a solid foundation. So again, in the day of evil, in the day when things are bad, in the day, not in the day where it's sunny and warm and happy, but in the day where it's rainy and the floods are coming and the winds are blowing, in that day, we stand. When the storms of life beat against the structure of a life that is founded upon a firm foundation, it holds Steady. Yep. It might leak through a few of the seams. Might get a hole in one of the windows. You might have to replace a few shingles on the roof afterwards. Those are things that are going to happen because we're human, right? And though, though, we, we, uh, though we are built upon a firm foundation, that doesn't mean that we are flawless in our structure. Spiritually, emotionally, whatever it might be. But will we stand? Now, none of these verses are saying that life is going to be steady for the follower of Christ, that there won't be problems associated with the physical and the temporal and the material things in life, as if the Christian doesn't deal with illness or relationship problems or drama in life or any of those sorts of things. These verses call us to a, per- a, a perspective of temperament and of outlook, a spiritual stability that grounds the follower of Christ into a constancy of a state of mind in the midst of the troubles of life. As contrasted with allowing our state of mind, our emotional state, our spiritual state, to be driven by our emotions and circumstances. And as with all things in the Christian life, so too with this. The Bible is aspirational in intent. I say that from time to time as it relates to the various things that we see in the Word of God. The Bible is aspirational intent. And what I mean by that is that I don't study these things. You don't study those things. We don't study these things so that I can walk around or walk away from these things discouraged to the extent that I don't live up to them. The Bible places a high bar, the bar of perfection, It is not intended that I walk away from that bar saying, I just can't live up to that bar. Well, of course you can't. Of course you can't. We study these things so that the believer can understand the potential that you have to inherit these things as you live in a determined fashion to align yourself with the principles of God's word and you let God do for you what you can't do for yourself. Now back to 1 John 3 then. John says that by these things, by making sure that what we say we believe is what we actually believe, and that it is fundamentally affecting and indeed motivating what we do, so that I am not just loving in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So I'm not just saying I love God, but I'm doing I love God. So I'm not just saying I believe his commandments. I'm doing I believe his commandments. I'm not just saying I love the brethren. I'm doing I love the brethren. That, when, that we then will find ourselves in a place of confidence whereby our heart will be assured before him. And then notice what what John goes on to say in verses 20 and 21. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. So John said in verse 19 that by living out the love that we say we have for the brethren, we know that we are of the truth and we can assure our hearts before him. But we know 
that feelings have a tremendous sway in our lives. There is nobody who is not emotional. I've learned that over the years. Different people manifest emotions in different ways. And I used to think that there was this subset of people that were not emotional. And, you know, because you look at them and they're stoic and they don't really react to things and whatever it is. That's not true. They are emotional. Humans are emotional, unless they're like sociopaths or something. But, you know, outside of this unique group of people who, are, who, have, who have some wires legitimately crossed, humans are emotional beings. They may manifest those things. You may manifest those things in different ways. Some of those ways, your manifestations may be a little bit uh, less helpful to you. Other people's manifestations might be a little bit more reserved or directed or whatever it might be. But we are all emotional people. And emotions will have a sway in all of our lives. And John addresses this very thing. If he says our heart does condemn us, if we find ourselves in a place where our emotions and feelings seek to draw us into a place of condemnation, condemnation perhaps for our failures, condemnation for our weaknesses, condemnation for the fact that the bar's up there and we haven't lived up to that bar, condemnation where within us wells emotions of insecurity and of vulnerability, God is greater than our hearts. Now, there is a debate among commentators as to exactly what this means. Some say this means, and this would be what I would have naturally, what I would naturally draw, draw to if I were just reading this from, a, from a, a, a perspective of just passing through it. Some say this means that, that, that God's mercy can overcome the condemnation that we feel in our hearts and give us peace. By this then, John means to comfort those who are doing right, but whose hearts are directing them to feel as though they're not measuring up. If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts. God is able to overcome those feelings of condemnation in our hearts and thus assure us and give us peace in the midst of our lying, deceitful heart. We'll get to that more in a little bit. Others say this means that to whatever degree our heart makes us feel inadequate, when we say we love the brethren, but we aren't doing it. So this, this kind of tries to root the idea in the context of what we read in verses 16, 17, 18. That if you are one of those people who is loving in word and in, tr- and in tongue, but not in deed and in truth, th- that group of interpreters says this is actually a warning. That if when you hear love, not in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth, your heart says, you're doing that. You're loving in word and tongue, but not in deed and truth. You are falling short of this before the Lord. That John is warning, saying, if you think that's how your heart is making you feel, God is, God's judgment is even greater. God, God's, God, the weight of conviction upon you, for what, you know, for, uh, from God is even greater than that. Imagine how God feels about your hypocrisy if that's what your heart makes you feel about your hypocrisy. And that's another way that people have interpreted this. And in one sense, I think both of these are actually possible. We call that a double entendre, right? A double meaning. Uh, Both of these are are possible in the text. Both of these are valid ways to interpret what the text is saying. I can't dig into the Greek on this one and say, well, actually, this, uh, this word tells us that it's this one and not that one. I can't do that here. Both of them are entirely valid meanings here. And I think that in some sense, John could mean both. Though those two thoughts are quite opposite in character. There is a a common thread that connects them 
that I feel like is the thing that is worth our focus when we hear, when we read these two verses and try to understand what they're saying to us. So you're familiar, perhaps, with the warning that God gave through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. We find there this this very, very well-known verse, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We acknowledge that the heart is prone to deceive and to being deceived, right? Uh, Regardless of of culture, regardless of outcome, those sorts of things. Now, of course, when we talk about the heart, this is one of several organs that the Word of God focuses in on to speak to some... intangible part of human nature, right? We talk about various things. The eyes are obviously the place where we see or we perceive. And we talk about the feet as the thing that gets us going or that by which we do, or our hands, talking about the things by which we do. Um, we can see various aspects of the bowels being our, the seat of our, uh, of, of our, our tender emotions or of our, of our, our um, uh, uh, compassions. And then we see the heart as the place of um, our, our thinking, our consideration, our, our motivations, our emotions in that sort of sense or in that sort of state. Some would say, well, when the Bible's talking about the heart, it's talking about the mind. And I think in, in part that is, that is valid, except that there's definitely something to the heart that is more than just reason or rationality when the Bible speaks of it, right? It is speaking of some sort of seat of emotional motivation, whereas the bowels would be more like emotional compassion or emotional desire, right? And so we, we see these things, and, and for whatever reason, um, historically, there has been an association with certain parts of the body and certain states of the human spirit, And we see that with the heart. So the Bible says here that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. For every person you and I know who is deceived into resting under some degree of condemnation for which Christ has already paid on the cross, right? There is also someone who is deceived into thinking that they are right with God when their lives are filled with sin and they are experiencing sin's regular consequences. So when we think about this idea that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and then we think about those two possible meanings, the one of them saying that when I am resting under, when my heart is attempting to condemn me for something of which I know I am of the truth, and I know that I'm doing right, and yet my heart is telling me that I'm not measuring up, we know that that's something that the heart does. We know that the heart, that that you might be sitting there having a hard day, and you failed again, and you've messed up again, and you've confessed your sin, and God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But then there's a part of you that says, why do you keep doing that? God must not, how, how, you, you really think God loves you when you do that again? Do you really think that God would accept that confession after you just did that yesterday? And there's a part that is, try, that is lying to you about your disposition toward God because the word of God says one thing and your heart is trying to tell you another. But for every person where we see that, we also see a person that kind of reflects that other way that we could interpret this. That if my, if, if my heart is laying upon me some, some true conviction over what I have done, well, God, who knows all, 
Imagine what he's feeling if that's what your heart is making you feel, right? For every person that is living under unjust condemnation, their heart is condemning them falsely. There's another person whose heart is telling him when he is doing wrong, when he is walking in sin's consequences, no, you're fine with God. This has nothing to do with God. This has nothing to do with you doing wrong. You just keep on doing that thing. It has nothing to do with that. You keep doing what you want. Obviously, that can't be the only explanation for why your prayers aren't being answered. That can't be the only explanation for why things are going bad. The, the, the only explanation is not that you're walking in rebellion with God. It's that person's fault. It's your, it's your parents. It's your siblings. It's, your, it's society. It's that it's, 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 it's that, 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 that government official. They're the reason why things are going bad. They're the reason why you're unhappy. They're the reason why you're discontent. They're the reason why you're angry. It's not you. It's not your heart. It's them. And there's one of those as well, right? For every man who thinks too little of himself through the self-deceit of his own heart, there's another man who thinks way too much of himself through the self-deceit of his own heart. The deceit of our hearts runs both ways. And I think to some degree, John is acknowledging that here. I think that there might be an ambiguity to this for that reason. Your heart can be deceived, Christian, one way or the other. Your feelings can be manipulated. Any man can find his way to any sort of a condemnation, self-condemnation, or self-justification. You have it within you to do either at any given time. Your heart is that Manipulative. In this case, John focuses upon condemnation. If our heart places, upon, uh, places us into a uh, context of accusation, God is bigger than that, right? God is infallible. Our hearts are not. And that's the thing that either, that, 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 that's, that's the, pr- the, the principle that runs through both of those interpretive ideas. Whether it's that my heart is falsely condemning me, but God is bigger than that, or my heart is rightly condemning me and God is bigger than that. Both of these speak to the same idea that whatever is happening in you, God is bigger than it. Right? Whatever's happening in you, God is bigger. If I'm feeling, if I'm rightly feeling conviction, and, and, and my, my own self is actually bringing upon my, me some conviction, imagine how God feels. But if I'm wrongly feeling some guilt, God, God is bigger than, than, than what I'm feeling. I don't, have to, I don't have to rest under my emotional state. I can get, God can bring me beyond that, right? I don't have to be under that, in that place. I don't have to rest in that place. The heart is deceitful. Jeremiah then said, who can know it, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah 79. Who can know it? Well, this is what I know. I can't know it and you can't know it. But there is an answer to that question rooted in this common thread. Who does know it? God knows it. You and I will never be able in ourselves to get a handle on yourselves entirely. No man can know himself that well. No one, no one can know all of the ins and outs of, of your own heart that well. And the reason why is because there's so much in this life that, that, we, that, that informs our emotional state. 
Are we thinking what we are thinking in clarity or are we thinking what we're thinking in deception? Do we have a proper motive or an ulterior motive? In today's vernacular, we call this implicit bias. There are a lot of things that we just don't really understand about why it is we are influenced, why we feel the way we feel, why we do the things that we do. There's a spirit. We're going to talk um, in John chapter 4 about the, spirit, the, the, the idea of believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God. That's coming up in just a couple of weeks. There is a spirit to the age that we live in. It's like the air that we breathe, and it will affect the way that we think. I've said before, we, we talk about it sometimes in, in Sunday school or on Tuesday night, that millennials, of which many of us are, Millennials are a people who are very, very invested in authenticity. Millennials want people to be authentic. That's not because we all had the millennial meeting one day and said, hey, we, we value this thing. It's because of the way our, the spirit of the age that our parents lived in, the way that our parents raised us, the, the, the spirit of their age affected the spirit of our age. There was a pendulum swing from authority to authenticity. All of these things that happened that we don't even really know. It's just the way we are. And it's fascinating to see that. I was talking to a young Gen Zer the other day, and I was talking about the spirit of their age and the fact that they have a spirit in them as well. And we're seeing that spirit start to manifest in the workplace through things such as quiet quitting, which is, I don't know if you've heard that phrase, quiet quitting, or work your wage. The idea that they are, they are limiting themselves as it relates to any sort of ambition in life based upon their perceptions of injustice, uh, of, of uh, a lack of, um, lack of appreciation in the workplace, all of these things. And there is a spirit of the age that, o- that overshadows them. All of these things factor in. Is, it ab- I mean, is there any way that it's possible that we can know all of the factors? The things that happened in our childhood, the things that happened uh, um, uh, through our, from, from our parents, by our parents, to our parents, uh, with our siblings, whatever it might be, all of the factors that go into why we are the way we are, why we feel the way we feel. I mean, you could sit on a couch all day with someone and just spout all of this stuff and try to trace all of the, the reasons why it is that we feel the way we feel. But 1 John 3 cuts through all of that and tells us this, that regardless of what is happening in your heart, Jeremiah 17 says, we're never really going to know it. Helps to know yourself, but you're never going to know yourself entirely in that way. But you know the one who does. God is bigger than that. God is greater than our hearts. God does know it. There is an to the question in Jeremiah 17, who can know our hearts? God can know our hearts. We talked about it this morning. It's the reason why, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. What is the psalmist saying there? He's not saying, God, reveal to me my heart. No, 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 no. You you search my heart and then you reveal to me the things that I need to change. Lead me in the way that I should go based upon what you know of me, what you know of my heart. God is greater than our hearts. God knows all things. God is not stuck in the conditions of life. God is not encumbered by difficulty. God is not encumbered by confusion. God is not encumbered by traumatic circumstances which might naturally inhibit his capacity to think clearly because God is above all of that. But we, 
We live with this heart of ours. We live with our fears. We live with our, uh, um, our, our suspicions. We live with our, uh, our feelings of incapacities. We live with our, 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 our difficulties as it relates to all of these things of relating ourselves to others and to life. And it's going to be there whether you like it or not. And it will seek to affect your thinking. To drive your emotions with the intent of driving your perceptions and your actions. But God is bigger than that. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, he fasted for 40 days. And at the end of this, he was tempted of the devil. And one of these temptations, the devil encouraged him to take the stones that were around him and to turn them into bread because he had not eaten for 40 days. And the devil knew that Jesus had the capacity to take those stones and turn them into bread. So he says, look, Fulfill the need. You're hungry. These stones are here. You could fundamentally change these into bread. So do it. Remember Jesus' response? He actually quoted Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. We read this in Matthew 4, 4. The Bible says, But he, that's Jesus, answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Jesus was acknowledging here that there are things in this life that are more important than the things of this life. That the word of God is as necessary to the proper functioning of a life as the biological necessity of food. That if we are going to find in this life that which God has intended and designed for us, it will not come only or even first as we live in the biological necessities or the natural compulsions of our bodies and of our lives, but as we first and foremost satisfy the natural spiritual necessities which we all have. Only then are we clearly positioned unto the designated success that God intends for his children. Only then are we aligned properly to be able to relate ourselves to the, to the biological things, to the material things that are happening around us. Only as I have first filtered every one of those things through the statements, the promises, the commands, and the expectations of the word of God do I see properly what God, how God would have us to relate to the things happening in the flesh. And it is for this reason that the principles that John is teaching are so important. God is giving us direct teaching which places within our lives tangible evidences of our abiding in him. Why is it good to have tangible evidences of our abiding in him? Because there's going to be days where you don't feel great about you. Where you don't feel great about maybe anything. You're going to feel distanced from God. You're going to feel like you're praying and it's bouncing off the roof and coming back down. You're going to feel as though there's, there's not a whole lot happening of spiritual value or spiritual success or spiritual progress. And if I find myself in some measure of an emotional struggle or turmoil in the context of my relationship with God, I don't have to rely upon how I'm feeling in that moment. I can go to tangible visible manifestations of whether or not I am right with God. I don't need to rely upon emotional convictions. And when I do so, I begin looking for emotional satisfaction. And that's a problem. 
Because I can guarantee you this, if you go around, if you're feeling emotional weights and you go around looking for emotional satisfactions, do you know who will always beat this pastor to the punch? The false teacher. The false teacher will be able to give you emotional satisfaction well before the, the, the right teacher will be able to give you that, that spiritual anchoring. Why? Because emotional satisfaction is quick, dirty, and easy. But it's empty. Much to the contrary. Maybe I give myself too much credit there. I don't know. But much to the contrary, John compels us to observe the fruit of our lives. And then rely on that. Rely on that. Through that fruit, relying on the word of God to guide our hearts into what is true according to the word of God rather than allowing our hearts to guide us. Lead your heart by the word of God. Don't let your heart rule you. And as you do so, your heart will be subject to the teachings of the word of God. This will lead your heart not into condemnation, but then in your emotions will, in a sense, catch up to your understanding. It will be brought into and under the control of the Spirit of God. When you put your emotions, your heart, your feelings in its proper place, they are then subjugated to the Word of God. And the knowledge and tangible proof of genuine love in our lives will sustain us before God when our heart seeks to tear us down. And this sustenance will silence the heart from its deceits. But that's not all either. Verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. When I find myself in this condition where I'm living not by bread alone, not simply by the whims of my heart and its emotions, not driven by the wind and tossed, but rather abiding in Christ through careful obedience, determined submission, manifest in tangible actions as I keep God's commandments and I love the brethren... I will be in this place of direct fellowship and in this condition, I have the confidence of knowing that I will receive of God what I ask of him because I keep his commandments. Now, we're going to spend our entire sermon next time talking about prayer in order that we can orient ourselves rightly to this promise. I could do, of course, a whole mini-series on prayer. I've done a whole mini-series on prayer before. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to do one sermon. It might become a two-parter. We'll see. Um, But one sermon on this idea of prayer. But for this week, again, I'm not going to go into all of it, but for this week, let me make something very clear. John is not saying here that answered prayer is God's reward to those who keep his commandments. That answered prayer is some sort of tit-for-tat, quid pro quo idea where I scratch God's back and God scratches mine. Where God may not want something for me, but hey, you know what? I've done him a favor, so now it's time for him to do me a favor. This is not what we are talking about as it relates to prayer. This is not what John is saying. Much to the contrary. The idea here is that the character of God, when I align myself with him, when I align my heart with his, with his truth, when I align myself in truth and I am living out that truth by faith, God's character is then freed. God is bound by his character, right? We talked about this a little bit in Genesis as it related to the idea that God repents. The idea there is not that God changed his mind, but that rather God had disposed himself toward man in a certain way that would be judgment, And then when man corrected himself, repented, and realigned himself with God, then God's character was able, was freed. 
to give mercy where before he was bound to judgment. God's character did not change. Man changed. And because man changed, God's character was able to renegotiate the circumstances and bring about mercy rather than judgment. It is the same idea. When I live in God's commandments, when I align myself with him, when I am seeking his way above my way, God's character is freed to bestow upon us all that he desires. Because sinful actions and wicked thoughts are not standing between us and God. When I am abiding in Christ, when I'm walking in the Spirit, the communion between myself and the Lord is of such that asking and receiving is a natural relationship where I know what to ask for because I know the character of God. And so more or less, I know what not to ask for because I know God's not going to give it to me if it's outside of his character. And God is free to give those things to me because he does not have the encumbrances of having to withhold from me certain things based upon my actions, disposition, or immaturities. We'll talk more about that next time. And this is, again, when I'm in this place, there is confidence. It's confidence that I am where I ought to be. How do I know that? I know because I'm seeing answers to prayer. That's a part of a process that gives me confidence in Him. And all the more confidence... That not only does God love me through Jesus Christ's death, which is an immutable, right? 1 John 3, 1. But then further confidence that my life is pleasing in his sight. So we read as we close out this chapter. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given unto us. Given us, excuse me. Now John connects one more very important dot here, which again, we will spend more time exploring later on in the book. John first summarizes these two great conditions, right? We've kind of beat this dead horse at this point as it relates to these two great conditions of abiding, which leads to fullness of joy. Obey God's commands. Jesus, uh, John here, connects this to believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And by this point in the text, it has been clear that this means not only that we have received him, but that we are actively following him, actively abiding in him. The command is not only to accept Christ, but to abide in Christ, right? And then second, to love one another. The general idea of loving your neighbor, that's important. That's a part of abiding in Christ. But this is a heightened idea of having that intrinsic heightened favor toward other believers that are in the church. And John tells us that when we keep these commandments, we dwell in Christ and Christ dwells in us. There's a mutual abiding one of another, that abiding which early on we connected to Jesus's teaching in John 15 uh, and thus to the picture of the branch and the vine, right? Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. The branches are the shoots that are off of the centralized vine. And that apart from the vine, the branch has no mechanism for sustenance. Apart from the vine, the branch cannot feed itself. It cannot support itself. The branch is designed to live through the sustenance, the sustaining contribution of the vine. The vine is what contributes the sustenance. The branch receives the sustenance and bears fruit. And when the branch is detached from the vine, it has no sustenance and therefore it cannot and will not bear 
fruit. So we're called to dwell in him. And as we do so, John says, and Jesus said before him, by keeping his commandments, we know that we are keeping his commandments, not when we are acknowledging in word the things that Jesus has said. I'm not keeping God's commandments when I'm saying what God's commandments are. Just because I know God's commandments doesn't mean I'm keeping God's commandments. I'm keeping God's commandments when I am bearing fruit. See, because when I'm bearing fruit, I have absolute confidence that I'm connected to the vine because I can't bear fruit if I'm not connected to the vine. Because the only way I can bear fruit is when I am receiving sustenance. And the only way I receive sustenance is from the vine because I have no capacity in myself to sustain myself. I must be connected to the vine if I'm bearing fruit. So that if I see fruit, I know I'm connected to the vine. And that doesn't mean I know I'm saved. I mean, it does mean I know I'm saved. This is one of the things when I teach assurance of salvation, but it's not just that I'm saved. There's a lot of people who are saved that are not living connected to the vine. It gives me confidence, not just that I am in Christ in the sense of born again, but it gives me confidence that I am walking in Christ. And then if my heart says, nope, you're not doing enough. Nope, you're not where you ought to be. Nope, you're, you're messing up. Nope, God, God must not love you. Nope, you, you, you're, you're so flawed. Nope, you're, you're so weak. Nope, these things. I can say, wait a minute. Yes, my heart is saying all of those things. And yep, I, I am still a dirty, rotten sinner. But here's what I know. I'm bearing fruit, which means I'm connected to the vine, which means I'm pleasing God. And I know that because I'm bearing fruit. I'm walking in the Spirit. So we learn what God has told us. We determine to live in it. Our deceitful hearts tells us all the reasons not to obey. Our deceitful heart tells us that maybe we can still love the world and and love God too. Our deceitful heart tries to convince us that we can never measure up anyway, so why does it matter? But what do our hearts know? And why would I ever subordinate what the all-knowing creator, what the all-knowing God has said to me? to the whims of my limited and flawed reasoning and understanding, to my fickle emotional state. Why would I do that? So I live by the word of God rather than by the whims of my own heart. And in this, my heart is brought in line and underneath biblical truth. And I'm now doing what God commands me to do. And as I abide in him, I find my desires are shaped and molded so that when I ask, I receive. And out of me begins to flow that which the sustenance of the vine is doing. And I begin to bear fruit, the fruit of the life of the spirit of God, which is in me. And that's what that last phrase says. We know that he abideth in us by the spirit, which he hath given to us. So Galatians 5 tells us that there are nine things that are called the fruit of the spirit, nine virtues. The spirit has me loving people in a way my heart would never love. I see fruit. The Spirit has given me joy in circumstances in which my heart would never naturally rejoice. I see fruit. The Spirit has given me peace in situations where my heart would bring anxiety and fretfulness. I'm bearing fruit. The Spirit has given me a long-suffering nature where my heart would be compelled unto Impatience. I'm bearing fruit. The Spirit has given me a gentleness where my heart would compel me unto cruelty. I'm bearing fruit. 
The Spirit has given me goodness where my heart would be predisposed unto evil. I'm bearing fruit. The Spirit has given me faith where my heart would be drawn into infidelity, into a lack of faith, a faithlessness. I'm bearing fruit. The Spirit has given me meekness where my heart would be predisposed to to exercise raw power. I'm bearing fruit. The Spirit gives me temperance where my heart would be predisposed unto intemperance, lack of self-control. I'm bearing fruit. So that I find myself, perhaps in spite of myself, in a blessedness of life that honestly has no business being there. Because it's certainly not, I haven't earned it. I'm not worthy of it. I haven't deserved it. But I'm living in a blessedness of life that can only be explained by the fact that I have connected myself to some source outside of myself that is putting something into me that is bearing fruit that is not my own. The fruit of the Spirit that is within me. It's there, undeniably. Certainly not from me. Not of anything of my own making. But only in that I chose to connect to the vine. And hereby I know that I'm abiding in him and he's abiding in me because of the spirit that he has given unto me. And this is the idea that I want to close with today. And don't check out on me here at the end because it is important. Earlier in this message, I emphasized the way that emotional validation is used as a counterfeit for spiritual contentment, for spirituality. That people might go to church or they might listen to a teacher or to music or read a book And they are filled with emotional motivation and validation, but it is only as good as the extent to which it has given me a quick infusion of emotional uh, inspiration. And this compels them unto feelings of contentment or to peace or whatever it might be, but only in the most surface level, in the most fleeting of ways, in a way that's still entirely circumstantial because it's rooted in the conditions of this world. It is a, it is a pseudo-spiritual idea. It is a pseudo-spiritual fruit. It is a, 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 a cheap copy, a cheap counterfeit of the real thing. And not only do many unbelievers live in these cheap counterfeits, but Christian, be warned, many Christians live in these cheap counterfeits as well. It's rooted in the conditions of this world, nevertheless, in the conditions of our heart, nevertheless, which is utterly changeable and, in, and changeable in every conceivable way. When instead we are called to lay that foundation on a rock, foundation which is Christ, to build our lives upon the unchanging character of God, upon his infallible word, that that I will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, I will attach myself to that vine and let God do that work in me. But as God presents it, as John presents it here, This kind of stability does require something of you. It does require you to play a part. And in my experience, it is this. It is the part that you are called to play that the people who need it the most oftentimes have the hardest part, have the hardest time doing. That is this idea of obedience, of connecting yourself to that bind. If you want what the Spirit of God has to offer, there is no 
substitute for obedience, Christian. There is no way. There's, there's no other way. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We sing that song. It's why it's one of my favorites, because it's, it's so simplistically true. And we Christians are very good at doing everything we can outside of giving of ourselves, outside of that actual step of obedience to get what we want from God. We're very good at that, but it will never work. You cannot, Christian, abide in anger and have this confidence. You can't do it. You cannot abide in resentment and unforgiveness and have this confidence. You cannot do it. You cannot abide in intemperance and drunkenness and these sorts of things and have this confidence. You can't do it. You cannot abide in covetousness and have this confidence. It, it, it is not possible. You cannot have your cake and eat it too in this instance. And for many Christians, when they find that they are not achieving that which they want out of the Christian life, when they find that they are actually falling short of this fruit-bearing existence, when it seems that this joy, this abiding, this place is eluding them, their solution is to add religion instead of spirituality, to add action rather than spirituality, to add something that they can still control, that they can still have the absolute, they can still be the final arbiter of, and they'll try everything except the only thing that works. They'll do everything other than obey. They'll say, I need to do more Bible studies. They'll start listening to more preachers. They'll start reading their Bible more. They'll go and they'll learn Greek so they can dig deeper. They'll do more scripture memory. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad things. I'm not saying that. But they will replace spirituality with study. And all of these things, again, they're wonderful things. It's a good thing to study the Word of God. It's a good thing to memorize the Bible. These are good things. But for most who are experiencing spiritual deficiency who are living under the condemnation of their own hearts, who are failing to see the manifestations of the Spirit of God in their lives, who aren't bearing fruit, your problem is probably not knowledge. For most, it is not that you don't have the tools at your disposal. Rather, in my experience, for most, it's because you're simply not willing to obey. You are unwilling to take that step and say, God, I'm hands off, you're hands on. You win, I lose. But you know what's the best part about when God wins and I lose? I win too. But that takes faith to believe that that's what's going to happen. Because God's not going to give that to me until after I've already yielded. For most the problem is that they simply won't obey. You've been convinced by your deceitful heart that you can stay angry and still have joy. Can't do it, but you've been convinced of that. You've been convinced by your own deceitful heart that you can continue to live in hypocrisy and still abide. You can't, but you've been convinced of it. You talk a great game and everyone around you is really impressed by your knowledge and your piety and you don't miss church, and you read your Bible regularly, and when someone asks a question, you have all of the intellectual answers to answer that question for them, and it's all well and good as far as the people that are looking at you, but in your heart, you're a wreck. There's no joy. There's no contentment. There's no abiding. And the reason why is because there's no obedience. What you're missing is submission. 
And because you aren't keeping God's commandments, you aren't dwelling in him. And because you're not dwelling in him, you're not attached to the vine. And because you're not attached to the vine, you're not getting any sustenance. And because you're not getting any sustenance, you're not bearing fruit. And that's the reason. And there's no other way to get that fruit than to abide in the vine. Attach yourself to the vine. And that means obedience. I talked about James chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 earlier. Those verses say, as it relates to this double-minded man, let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you're sitting on that fence... You've got the knowledge. You know all of these things about the word of God. You've got the answers. You understand those things. You're, you're in church. You're coming to church. You're listening. You're listening online. You're faithful to do so. You're driving to work and you're not listening to that junk on the radio. You're listening to this podcast and you're filling your mind with these good things, but you aren't in a place of joy. You aren't in a place of contentment. You aren't in a place where the, your heart is, is, is brought into submission and so you are living in confidence toward him. On the authority of God's word, like it or not, the reason why is because you aren't obeying. And it's not an easy solution but it is a simple one. Connect yourself to the vine. And as you connect yourself to the vine, it's no longer about you. It's about Christ in you. And you might be surprised at how things might change. You might be surprised at what yielding up that last vestige of yourself could do for you. If we want God's blessing, Christian, we've got to do it God's way. That way is submission. Faith manifest in obedience, not in word and in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.